0: Welcome, listeners, to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, the podcast that highlights cozy and traditional mysteries. You won't find stories filled with explicit sex or graphic violence. You will find interviews with authors who create crime fiction filled with intriguing plots, engaging characters, and high-quality writing. Thanks for listening. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Jacqueline Winspear, author of the Maisie Dobbs novels, joins me in the corner today to chat about The Consequences of Fear, the 16th in the series. Welcome, Jacqueline.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here.
0: Now, you write a long-running series featuring one of the most popular protagonists since Miss Marple. Your fans know all about Maisie, of course, but for listeners just discovering this series, would you tell us a bit about Maisie and what she's up to in The Consequences of Fear?
1: Okay, Um, well, to introduce Maisie, um, readers first met her in the first book in the series, Maisie Dobbs, and that opens in 1929, but that story has a lot of her backstory woven into it. And in fact, uh, she comes from very lowly beginnings but she's a very, very bright young woman. And her, um, that, her intellectual ability, if you will, is noticed by her, a friend of her employer, um, an interesting man called Dr. Maurice Blanche. And he sort of takes her under his wing and, um, and really, I suppose, uh, introduces her to a world and people that she might not have known, but very much from an educational point of view, because she still has her job, still has a day job. Um, She wins a place to um, a prestigious uh, ladies college in Cambridge, Girton College. And um, she gives up that place at the opening of the great war and she becomes a nurse. She lies about her age, which is what a lot of people did. She lied about her age to serve. But we meet her, as I said, in 1929, it's after the war. She um, is stepping out on her own as a psychologist and investigator Having been Maurice Blanche's apprentice for some years, and um, and of course the first case unfolds, and we find out a lot about Maisie's life. But through the series, and as you say, I'm, I'm, this is book number sixteen, um, and we're now in 1941, so Maisie is a lot older. And each of the books has taken us further on in time. So it's it's you know there is not only an arc to each story, but there's an arc to the life of each of the characters, Um, because there's not only Maisie Dobbs, there's her assistant Billy Beale, and we come to know his family, we come to know her family, and her friends, and those that she associates with, and everyone has their story. So that sort of brings us up to um, October 1941.
0: Now, as you mentioned, the first novel was set in 1929, which is a, a decade before England declared war on Germany. Yes. Uh, the consequences of fear, as you said, brings us to October of 41, which is just a couple of months before the attack on Pearl Harbor that brings the U.S. into the war. So back in 2003, when you were writing that that first book set in 1929, did you realize you're going to cover such a long span of time? I
1: didn't even realize I was going to cover another book. (laughs) (laughs) I was writing a story that was in my head. And that's what I was thinking of, boom, that story. And I was very immersed in it at the time. And, you know, you all know about this, I had the the day job. And I was also getting over a really bad accident at the time. Be that as it may, um, one of the things that was happening is I was writing whenever there was a scene that I thought, oh, you know, that doesn't quite fit or a piece of dialogue or something. If it didn't fit, um, I put it in a file on my computer desktop marked fragments. We spears are pack rats. We don't throw anything away because it might come in useful one day. And it was after, you know, I mean, I was very fortunate. I, um, I found an agent uh, when I'd finished the book. And in time, there was a publisher and we went through all that process. And On the day the book went into production, my editor called me and said, oh, Jackie, let's talk about the next book in the series. And I thought, what, (laughs) you know, the next book in the series. And I did a little tap dance and uh, I I actually pretended that someone was at the door or something like that because I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't know what to say. But what I did was I thought, OK, I've got my fragments file. Let's get that out and I printed off every page, which was often only a paragraph. And I put it out on the floor and I moved things around and I thought, okay, I've got the kindling, not the story, just the kindling for more books here. And I figured I had probably another five or six books, but I had to, but just a spark, just a spark. And that gave me an opportunity to sit down and think, okay, what what do I want to write? If I'm writing a series, what do I want to write? And I wasn't clear that I would come this far because of course one you know if you're selling you've just so you know you're just publishing your first novel you don't know if there's going to be a two three or four and um, I realized that what I wanted was to have a character who would grow and change and move through time and and so there's not just as I said that arc to the story but there is an arc to the series because that to me felt like a very organic way of moving forward and of course, I, I love history. I love, absolutely love women's history. It's been a subject uh, I have been really curious about since I was a kid. So it gave me an opportunity to really, to, frankly, to indulge myself completely in the history of the time. So that's how I figured it out. Thank you. That's a good, that's a good question. Thank you. So I had a chance to figure it out. You know, what, what, how am I going to do this? And
0: so far, it's, it's worked. Yeah. Very, very well. I mean, it's been <laughs> 16 books and counting, <laughs> but, um, speaking of, I mean, you, you, didn't just pick any period in history. You picked a period, there were so many significant events that have occurred. I mean, you, you span the trauma of a nation that's uh, you know, struggling to deal with the loss of an entire generation of men in the first world war to the post-war social upheaval that contributed to the rise of the Nazis to the trauma of another modern world war so soon on the heels of a war that was supposed to have ended war forever. So how do you balance the weight of that history with the demands of, of telling you know, a good fictional story?
1: By remembering it's all about the story. Uh, And this is something I I, I, I guess I alighted on earlier on. And in a way, it just came naturally because, how can I put it? Particularly in the earlier books, I was doing. An awful lot of research, and I still do a lot of research. But I've also got a lot of research already done, so to speak. I've I've, I've done the, the foundations. I've got the foundations, and you know, as I was doing that, I mean, you, you, it was that realization. And I don't think, to be quite honest, Alex, it wasn't um, something I thought um, consciously, but rather a feeling. I'm not writing narrative nonfiction. I'm writing a story about people and you know okay they're they're fictional people but they are people and it's about character and what I would have always been interested in yes there's all the events of the era all the events of the time but but how do all those things affect people and the only way to tell that to tell the truth is through fiction and so that was my my um focus and what I did I just trusted that all that work I would done would would find its way into every word I wrote. I didn't need to say, and they walked along the street and that building was, you know, put up in 1871 and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, I didn't have to get it all in just because I'd done it. And I came to realize that in a way, all that knowledge and understanding I'd garnered was really like an iceberg. Only 7% of it should be visible above the surface. I guess what it comes down to is the fact that that when you're with fiction, you you can touch universal truths, and you you know the facts are like are like the seasoning that, that underpin those truths. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: It makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, it also leads into my next question. You know, um, this this is also a period that is rather well documented. I'm only exaggerating a little when I say there have been a gazillion documentaries and books and scholarly articles um plus the you know this is an era where we have contemporary you know we've got photographs we've got the recorded absolutely radio interviews and you you could listen to churchill actually speaking or roosevelt actually speaking Mm -hmm. so do you even worry about either teaching someone something they didn't know about a period that they probably th- at least think they know a lot about, or is it, hey, I'm, you know, my first responsibility is to telling the best story I can tell, and if they happen to learn something about history, that's kind of a, a bonus you know, icing on the cake, but you know, the, the story is the, the story of Maisie and, and her friends and family, um, or what's, what's the main concern?
1: It's the story. It has to be the story, and it's um, developing authentic characters and uh, and, a, and a story that that sort of holds water, that is believable. If people then become curious about their own family history, about a period of history that they didn't know anything about, and they suddenly think, oh, you know, well that could explain why great uncle Jack didn't talk to anybody for the rest of his life, or whatever. And then they delve into it. That 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 is icing on the cake, actually. And I I have right from the get go received all sorts of emails and messages from people who in reading the books it's taken them to another sort of place I've actually heard from a lot of veterans um and interesting enough from people who work with with veterans families um you know to try and help them get over that period of coming home from uh, a war zone or whatever and I, I found that actually very curious because or I was curious about that because I um I asked someone about it and she said, well, it's, she said, I don't want to insult the spouses group by suggesting self-help books, she said, but we can get into fiction together that takes us to the conversation. So in a way it's allied to your question. So the answer is that, that, you know, the, the, yes, the focus is my story because I'm a storyteller and I'm, you know, I'm a storyteller. I like to tell my stories. I like to get into character. I like to weave in the events of the day, because I like to know how ordinary people are affected by the big things that happen. And that can all become part of the story. But if then someone go, reads it and goes off and does that family research, they look into something they have never known about before, or it helps them understand something about their own family experience or whatever, then as I say, that, that's, uh, that's good to know, it's an icing on the cake. <laughs>
0: and and speaking of uh, family history i think i read that uh, some of your family history has found its way into uh Maisie's, Maisie's story
1: yeah you know, w- without doubt um you know because i if i look and what it is it's it's it goes back to that uh kindling it, it's the inspiration so i can look at events like my grandfather was severely wounded at the Battle of the Somme in 1916 he was shell-shocked gassed and he had horrible wounds to his legs. He, he was still removing shards of strap, shrapnel from his legs when he died at the age of 77. And I, I was 10 years old at the time, you know, so I, I, I had seen that happening and I knew about his, um, you know, the, the fact that he was very sensitive to sound, which actually a lot of um, um, men in, in, from that war and actually even today have uh, percussion injuries, uh, i.e. the fear the sound gives of distant uh, artillery fire gives them uh, the fear of what will happen next, or they are they're literally physically affected by the sound. Um, my maternal grandmother was uh, wounded in an explosion in a munitions factory in the Great War. She, her brother, came home from the war wounded and died not long afterwards. And she didn't want to get married in white because she said, "I can't because I'm in mourning." Wow. And, and then you go into the, the Second World War, and you know I come from a big, extended family, and there's a lot of this about. And so you know, I look and, and almost every theater of, of the Second World War was one of my family was there, you know, uh, whether it was North Africa, Sicily, um, you know, the, the beaches of Dunkirk. Um, and so on and so forth. And it's not that you hear big family stories, you just hear the little snippets and it just takes one little snippet for the imagination to, to, to work with that. Um, one of the things in the consequences of fear, um, my father, um, he was um, about 13 when war was declared. But even before that, because he was a very, very, very fast runner. And he had been uh, literally picked from, all the, from the boys in his school, only a couple of them, the air raid people, air raid precautions people came around, to run messages during the bombing. So after school, he would, at 12 years of age, 13, he would report to an ARP de- depot, get his tin hat, and he would have to run messages. Wow. And goodness knows what he saw. So, and not only that, there's the civilian um, stories that have worked their way into my books, you know. Um, there's, and I don't want to give too much away for readers, but who haven't got that far, but there's the um, appearance of Anna, the little evacuee. Well, my mom and her siblings were all evacuated out of London at the beginning of the war. And so that sort of takes you further on And, um, and, and, you know, there's often things that people have seen, people have witnessed and which can give the, the, the writer, particularly, I think of mystery, something to go on you know, something to go on elegy for eddie for example um my book elegy for eddie was uh, the, the the character is based upon someone that my father knew when he was a boy and you know it's it's amazing how even before i became a writer you know i would hear a story and i'd actually think to myself oh there's a story there you know you know i'm that's fabric I can work with (laughs) but and I just I guess I just filed it away Alexia just filed it away for a later date
0: how how has your your family or your extended family reacted to little bits of their stories working their way into your your series are they (laughs) happy they think that's that's the coolest thing in the world and they tell all the friends hey that's actually you know that's that's grandpa or they like you said, sometimes you know maybe Uncle Jack doesn't want to talk to anybody about yeah, yeah. Anymore, so he might not be so happy with it so how,
1: how- I'm, I'm very careful it's just a little a little bit here and there although i I will add that when I wrote um the Care and management of Lies, which was my standalone novel, not actually a mystery, but set firmly in the Great war and uh, it was uh, chiefly it was about the relationship between uh, actually the military and food and also a relationship between two women. <laughs> My mother got into it a a couple of chapters. My mum passed away a few years ago, but she called me and she said, well, I'm reading your new book. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, she said, I've got to tell you, you can't say anything around you without it ending up in a book. (laughs) (laughs) She said, you really have to keep your mouth shut around you, otherwise it'll end up in a book. And and I guess, you know, I mean, The American Agent, um, my book, The American Agent, it it starts off with... um, and it's, it's a lot of it is about reporting in, in in the Second World War, and it starts off with uh, the, it opens a, a scene with um, a, an American journalist in London, and there is something she witnesses, which is very heartrending, and it's something one of my aunts witnessed, and she's that aunt is now ninety two, and almost every time I see her, she tells me again, because she was a very impressionable age when she witnessed this event after a bombing and it's never left her so you know she's she's she was maybe 15 16 at the time and uh, you know so uh, so yeah i guess my family have they they, they they care for what they say around me now
0: <laughs> uh, now you you mentioned that um, you know the the character who witnessed this event based on what your your aunt saw was a journalist so it's you know it's a a woman with a profession Um, and Maisie herself has a profession and she's a a actual private detective as well as a psychologist and this is a period where we tend not to think of women as as having certain professions you know especially in, in detective fiction you know it's find for the women to be the amateur sleuth in books set during this period. But, um, so d- did you find during your research you know, women working as professional investigators and, and how did you research their their backgrounds?
1: Um, this is something that I've been, I guess really interested in. It's even when I was a teenager, actually the first woman detective at Scotland Yard um, was a woman called Dorothy Pito and she, um, and that was in 1929. Um, but here's the thing, and, it, and, and this happened more so in the UK and, and Europe and, uh, than it did in US at the time. So I guess it's not surprising there is this, this idea of women and their position. But one of the things that happened in the Great War was that, um, you know I mean, before the war started, you, you could expect your life to be pretty much like your mothers and grandmothers before you. Your opportunities were probably as restricted as your clothing. And then you move we move into the first world war, and literally, if it was male and it was over a certain age, it was gonna go to war. you know men were drafted in 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 the hundreds of in the millions actually and uh, initially it was thought there was no place for women, but it soon became evident that the war could not be fought without the work of women, so in Britain, women moved into. Uh, war work and other work as never before. And that didn't quite happen in in this country in in the United States. But to give you an example, I think there were probably, um, and and someone will correct me on the stats, but two or three million women already in work in Britain. And just like here, they were doing invisible jobs. They were taking in laundry. They were looking after other people's children. There were some women already working in that newfangled thing called an office. And, you know, with those things called typewriters. And, um, and, and yes, there were women, who, some women had professions, but suddenly, you know, the great war opened up this big sort of avenue of opportunity and some 900,000 worked in, um, almost a million worked in munitions. Women went into a, almost every field of endeavor to release men for the battlefield. The, the first women went on the streets of London as auxiliary police officers. Um, they buried the dead, they built houses, they built bridges, they worked in aircraft construction, Um, they went to war as uh, ambulance drivers and nurses, and also as agents, women were code breakers even in the first world war. And some more than 50,000 women worked for the then fledgling secret service. Mm -hmm. And it was really built on the back of, of, of their hard work. The youngest were actually girl guides who were running messages. They tried the Boy Scouts, but they skylarked around too much and didn't the messages didn't get to where they were going, and and so there was this great sort of I mean the work of and everything was was um, even advertising was geared towards getting women out. You know, it was sort of like there's a hot drink called Oval tr- Ovaltine, and it was set your daughters on the w- on the way to work in the right way, and it was a hot drink. And of course, after the war, it was you know don't whatever you do, don't give her Ovaltine, you know, but. Um, but the thing is that, that for so many women, Alexia, it, it changed the notion of what was possible because they were suddenly in looser clothing, shorter skirts, because you know, that long skirt is gonna get, you're gonna be up to your knees in blood by after an hour if you're a nurse in the battlefield in a long skirt, it's gotta come up. And, and, and ditto with, for example, working in munitions, you had to, you, 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 you had, your clothing had to be different women were wearing trousers in some jobs, and so on and so forth. And I still remember, um, it was part of my research earlier on, I was at the Imperial War Museum in London, in their archive, listening to um, old uh, sort of audio recordings. And these recordings went back to probably, I want want to say the 1970s when it was realized that that generation, actually probably the 60s, that generation was getting older and passing on. So they had to get, they had to get the, the, the audio recollections of the generation that had lived through the Great War. And there was this one woman, I was listening to her, and I think she had probably just been asked the question, how did the war change your life, how, the Great War change your life? And, she, and you could suddenly, you imagined her sitting ramrod straight in her chair saying, well, my dear, let me tell you, the war opened the stable door. When that stable door opened, we women bolted. And once we had bolted, there was no going back. And there's um, actually a wonderful book called Singled Out by um, a woman called Virginia. Oh, gosh, her last name will come to me in a minute. Um, Virginia, Virginia. It'll come to me in a minute. And uh, anyway, Singled Out. And it was a book that I would love to have written. Terrific um, uh, research. But it was about that generation of women and how even after the Great War, so this is Maisie Dobbs' generation of women, they blazed a trail and they moved into public life as never before. Many became teachers, there's a, you know, there's a job that brings you into contact with children and so, and for so many there wasn't a husband and kids. And think about it, it was the great age of the woman mystery writer, there's a job you can do at home with no training, as I always say, as as I know only too well. You know, it's it. it, it think of the women. You know, there's so many. And that, they are, to me that in indeed, so many characters, great women characters, came out of that generation as well. The very doughty British woman who could take on the world and indeed solve every crime because she's better than the men. <laughs>
0: And, and and that actually leads into i mean I, I i literally did have a question about the queens of crime written next so
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, yeah so it's it's you know i'm thank you for for bringing that up because i wasn't going to ask you about that but and sort of on a side of i also remember hearing on um uh, the podcast i think uh, she done it uh there was an episode about surplus women who i think also yes came out of this period or you yeah. mentioned the women who didn't have the husband and and because literally the marriageable men were all dead, um, and so is did, did, did that class of women. For lack of a better phrase for them, figure into your into the- Oh, movie?
1: absolutely! I've, there's one thing I wanted to do with the book, it was to honor the spirit of that generation of women, because indeed the 1921 census revealed that there were two million quote unquote surplus women for whom there would never be um, a husband and children, and in fact questions were asked about who would control these crazy women who did not have the calming hand of a man upon them. I mean, really. And what, when I was a kid, I knew those women, you see, because they were the ladies of a certain age in our very small rural community who were miss this, miss that, miss the other, you know, and all really getting on. And for every single one of them you went into their house and there was a sepia photograph of a long of a young man lost to war usually you can imagine the photograph in his uniform with you know the the potted plants and the curtain behind you know stage and they all you know a lot of had those sort of photographs done and and what I remember are women that were incredibly sort of doughty very strong opinionated women who were sort of stalwarts of a community never interfered as such, but were always sort of there. And, um, and I, I, I just really wanted to honor that generation because I started getting very interested in that, in that history as a teen, um, And so I, it comes as no surprise that I ended up writing about someone who reflected that generation, I wanted to very much in the books, and also this is to do with many of the people that Maisie meets to show the broad spread of experience. And I didn't sit down and think, "How am I going to do this?" It sort of came organically. So there's the, you know, there there, there were women who absolutely, as I said, blazed a trail, but there were those who um, also floundered. You know, they maybe looked after their aging parents to the end of their days, and then they ended up in a a little bedsit type flat, a little studio, or or living with other another woman. And, you know, no one asked questions in those days and said, well, you know, what kind of relationship is that? Because there was the, there was a real sense of honouring the companionship. And everybody needs companionship. And you know, for many women, that was another woman who had also lost her sweetheart. And people growing old together. Um, you know, I, I knew people like that when I was a kid, you know, and it was, it was the missus, the miss this and the miss that. So um, so in Maisie Dobbs, you know, um, you know, sometimes people say, well, uh, you know, some, some pretty horrible things have happened to her. Pretty horrible things happened to a lot of people then, <laughs> you know, really horrible. Um, and, you know, there were men and women who had lost children in the early years of the, 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 the century. And to any one of those diseases, scarlet fever, diphtheria, you know, tuberculosis, smallpox whatever, and then only to see their children go off to war in the second world war. So, you know, people experienced awful things. And so, but I wanted to, I guess, give a sense and particularly with that generation of women of the resilience, their, 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 their capacity for endurance but not to take away from the emotional, and financial challenges that they many of them faced. So yeah, there's that'll make you write a mystery. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you can just imagine now sitting and thinking, now what do I do? And, and 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 having a great idea, you know, in your bed, sit for a book or whatever. And and yes, it, it yeah, those the, the queens of crime. <laughs>
0: And and speaking of, and that's that's usually for for listeners who might not be familiar with with um, who that refers to. It's usually um, Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, uh, Niall Marsh, and yes. uh, Marjorie Allingham. I think are, are usually the ones. They're, yeah, are.
1: they're the, the, the queen bees.
0: <laughs> and and they 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 basically would have been Maisie Dobbs's contemporaries. And yes, a lot of the the strong. I think capable is the word. Um, I think capable is a compliment. Even though I think some people, think, I'd love to be called capable. Um, but and they also but they also feature like you said the, the other side the the women who maybe weren't as as successful um, and for me I'm I'm a huge fan of, of Golden Age detective fiction mm-hmm. um, and and it is the the strong um, you say the dowdy dowdy women I mean they're, they're, they're yeah. what draws me to it I, I like strong independent trailblazing women um, but what you, what do you think makes it so popular I mean like the, the the British Library Crime classic series, I think, is up to almost 100 books from this period that they've reissued now. So, obviously, people are, are reading them. So, something set basically about 100 years ago now is still appealing to people today. Um, so, what do, what do you think makes this time period wow. appealing?
1: I think there are several things at play. And number one, um, they're, they're good stories. You know, they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And as human beings, we have always been drawn to the journey, the archetypal journey that is the mystery. It's that journey through chaos to resolution and all is well. Now here we are living in a world where all does not exactly seem well at the moment. A lot of things are going wrong. We have what we're well, now we've had the pandemic. There uh, and uh, There's Things happening geopolitically that are very scary. There's things happening socially that are alarming. Um, and people have this uh, people are uneasy. We're on uneasy ground. That's how it feels. We are on, and also for a good many years, we as a people, we have uh, and, and and obviously there are whole groups for for whom you know this is a broad brush stroke, and there are whole groups for whom this does not work. But we have not had to live with some of the the risks that our previous generations had to live with, except now with I guess the pandemic, which is why it's come as such a shock. And but we've we've not lived through a major world war, two in a very short time. Major pandemics that that you know people suffered or uh, epidemics in the earlier part of the century. So there's this business of being feeling unsettled, and here we have. A, a, lit, a, a literary form that for a while we can go to the dangerous place, but we come out again and all is well. And it also gives us a sense that, you know, you can go, and this is why I think, the, especially the, the historical mystery or the, his, the, the, his, the mystery that has been written, uh, you know, at that time, but is contemporary, that people were living through terrible things, but they all came out the other side and we can too. Um, so I think all those things mixed together with with good storytelling at a time when you know over the last few years um, and for various reasons, particularly since twenty sixteen, there was a lot of dark dystopian types of storytelling out there, and, and both fiction and nonfiction, very dark, very dystopian, very. Um, often set in the future when you know it seemed that everything bad was going to happen and people can we we don't need that a lot of people just don't need that they want to know that all will be well all is well that ends well and also there's the other thing not to forget that you know in we're actually in also in the entertainment industry and people want to be entertained you know people people, what and you know we both know that some of the best writing touching upon everything from environmental matters, political situations, social ills, etc, you can be found within the literary form that we call the mystery. Um, But uh, um, almost lost my thread there. But you know, it also has to be entertaining, because people are having to put up with a lot now. And the golden age was very entertaining and gave all people all sorts of confidence along the way. That's my, in my humble opinion. <laughs> I could be completely wrong. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, so if uh, if someone asked you, is it, is it someone told you that they, they love Maisie Dobbs and they, they would love to read uh, uh, some crime fiction written in the era that Maisie is is inhabiting, what would you suggest they start?
1: Oh my gosh. Oh, with the, all the, with the classics that you've mentioned actually. Why not? Um, but you know there there are others, and you see the thing is that once you you touch the the, the tip of that iceberg, you it 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 opens up um, just a whole you know cavern of, of places to go with the different writers. But I think you could do no better. Um, you know, Marjorie Allen wonderful. Also going to, I mean, the first ever mystery I read was Josephine Tay, the Franchise Affair. Oh, nice. I can't remember how old I was. Um, and, and I think later on, I, I think the next one that I actually remember was um, Wilkie Collins' um, The Mo- Moonstone, uh, I think it was, and so, um, so I think, yes, you've, you've mentioned it, it's the, those classics, go to those classics, but also let's remember that, that you know, that, that these were very special generation of women, very special, they are genera- the first generation of women to go to war in modern times or go into war work in modern times in very, very, very significant numbers. And, uh, and you, what I'll also re- always remember is someone like my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who went through that war, lost a brother, um, was wounded herself, and then come sort of 1939, 1940, 1941, she watched three of her children go into the service. One of my uncles who was at the Normandy landings, and uh, another aunt was in the Women's Royal Air Force, and another aunt was in the Women's um, uh, Royal Naval Service. And I, off, and then I look at my dad's um, father. You know, seeing his sons go into the army, what, what did he think, and what did he think about his boy running through the streets of London, running messages in when bombs are falling. So I, I think of that generation, and um, and. No, no wonder we call them the greatest generations really, but they certainly, those, those queens of mystery, that's the place to go.
0: <laughs> and and uh, you know, on, on the switching gears a, a little bit, sticking with, the, with the, the greatest generation, I mean, you decided to take time from writing fiction, which still has a lot of you know, your family story in it, to actually write your family story in a memoir. Um, this time next year, we'll be laughing so what what inspired you to to write the the non-fiction version of the truth (laughs)
1: Uh, i think what it has in what the the memoir has is um it has those sparks in it It, you know we don't murder people (laughs) we might feel like it at times but (laughs) we we, we've uh, not generally come across things like that um but you know, little stories that that were the sp- became sparks for me for my fiction, and and that's all they are really. Um, but what inspired me to? Do, I've always loved memoir, and I I actually I think I I came in my fiction. I think I use a lot of the if you will um, techniques that you might use as a memoirist. Um, which of course fiction writers use, but I was so much more aware of it, sort of uh, writing the personal essay. And I, I had written quite a number of personal essays before I embarked on the memoir. And, and in a way the memoir is is a collection of essays and it can be seen that way. But, and, and that is the sort of techniques of you know, bringing the camera in, zooming in on a certain scene and sort of having a sense of when to draw back and look at the big picture. Um, so. Really, what inspired me to write the um, the memoir? I, initially, it was my parents' early years um, as a married couple, which were a little bit extraordinary, a little bit different. But it also, you know, when I think of the reasons why they they left London and lived this um, uh, rather bohemian life for a while, um, you know, was was it was to do with particularly for my mum getting over. I'm sure getting over. Um, or finding a way away from bomb sites and war, and some of the things that that I think really played on her mind. So, um, but also it's uh, it, it's a memoir about family and about, um, you know, the, the ups and downs of family, um, particularly, you know, at a, what was it quite a different time, although it doesn't seem, to me even now it doesn't seem that long ago, you know. Um, and, uh, so, and, and also, very much, uh, you know, I, I, I think of um, a couple of things. It's, it's what people endure and then come out the other side. Um, but the interesting thing is, uh, and this is sort of uh, associated with your question one of the aha's I had, and, and I don't know, and it's, it's probably so obvious to everybody who reads it, but it wasn't to me, is how much I was impacted by my mother's job that she did when I was about 15. She, um, and it was the job she had for the rest of her career, um, working her way up. She went into prisons administration. Now that, that was not a disciplinary role. She was not a prison officer or anything. She worked purely in administration. And initially with, um, at a detention center for young offenders, 16 to 21. It, and if they're in, if they're in an in- institution that it's not a first offense that they've done something bad. second or third time, because first offense, unless they killed someone would have been probation. And I still remember, um, and she worked her way up very quickly. And she had she accepted the job at a later date when she was somewhat close to retirement. Well, no, I think about maybe 10 years from retirement now, I think I'm thinking, she if she had accepted the offer, she would have been the first ever woman chief administrator of a British high security prison. Wow. But I remember one day and I think this really is something that that shows up in my work is her coming home from work and I was just home from school I guess I was about 16 and I made her a cup of tea and we sat at the kitchen table and she seemed a bit down and I I said you know how what's what's up what's going on she's and it was just something that happened at work as these things are and it was someone you know some kid that that had come back again, he's in trouble. And it was just a very sad situation. <clears throat> and she would never have named names, but she gave me a, a, a sort of a, an overview of what had happened <clears throat> to this kid. And I said to her, I said, what, what, makes, what, what happens to people that they end, that they end up going down, what they end up go, things end up going wrong? And she said, you know what, Jackie? She said, somewhere along the line, someone didn't care enough. And she said it might have been the parents, it could have been the grandparents and their treatment of the parents, it could have been the whatever. She said something happened somewhere and someone didn't care enough to see or do anything about what was happening. And I think that's one of the reasons why I certainly always tend to look for the victim inside the perpetrator of the crime and vice versa you know that is there something in the victim and uh, and that's a very inflammatory thing to say at this point but you know what what causes what where where are the points of contact yes where is the point of contact between a victim and the perpetrator of a crime and um, and what happened what went wrong and where did innocence leave and um, you know and so I guess what I'm saying is it's not so much the what's in the victim but what what was that point of connection and uh, which I think can be you know you can wrap up in a story um and and I always like to see from that point of view yeah so that was one thing that came up writing the memoir I suddenly realized oh maybe her job did have something to do with what I do today <laughs> you know crime was on the table every day <laughs>
0: Yeah. And, and as you as you mentioned before, uh, fiction is a way of getting at the truth as much as memoir is. Um, so you know, in, in both you in both your nonfiction and fiction, you, know, you 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 do examine things as you know, where's the point of contact between uh, the, the the victim and, and the the victimizer? So, but which is trickier? Which which one is well, neither one of them is easy. So I don't want to say easier, but which one is a trickier way to handle the, the truth or to get at the truth or to, to, to uncover the truth?
1: Um, I think, you know, th- this is where uh, I think fiction, being a writer of fiction, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's both a challenge and a responsibility because you, you are dealing with universal truths. And that's what a lot, you know, yes, we love the entertainment, um, uh, but it's interesting how many times people come away from a work of fiction and something has resonated somewhere with them it's it's because you almost can't help to touch universal truths but i think I, what i try to do and and sometimes it happens quite organically and sometimes i have to really you know but it's all part of getting into the whole character that you've developed is is what went wrong for this person that they have committed a crime or that things have gone wrong in their life because you know I, I I don't just want some you know one-dimensional killer you know oh yeah he did it and he did 10 of them you know well what makes someone go out and take the lives of 10 people you know or two people or one person what makes someone do that it's a question we're all asking I think a lot of at the moment and what And you can't explore it all the way because of course you have to keep up pace. You have to keep up rhythm and you have to keep the the reader's attention. But I think it's worth exploring because it makes it a much richer experience and much more believable if we can have some idea of what has gone wrong in someone's life that they would commit a crime. And what is it in the detective, in the investigator that makes them see that? And in seeing that, know that that is the person that they need to be looking at long and hard. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, one, the, the, just lately we've, we've seen some horrible um, killings here in America, um, gun deaths. And it always one of the things, and I saw today, one of the first questions is that police are not yet sure of the motive, you know, and, and there are some, probably some people out there thinking, we don't care the motive, look what this guy did. They have to. What is the motive? What went wrong? And I think if we're, it's part of exploring character, you know. And what was it in that victim that sparked something in that that person? Was it just that they were there at the wrong time? Was it something they reminded someone of? Were what? And so sometimes it's just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know. Um, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes there's a closer connection. Um, And it's, it's, you know, I, I, the last thing you want to do is, is um, comment on on current cases. But I mean, one thing that I I find interesting and tragic is when someone sees, uh, you know, the perpetrator of a crime sees a connection with the victim that just doesn't exist. And then they then rejection causes their actions, you know, and it's, it's you know, someone else. You know, is is perhaps being kind, and it's seen as something else. I mean, that's a. I mean, it's all a tragedy, isn't it? Really, but <laughs> uh, but but it's how we and, and we and as as writers. And I know I'm probably going off a tangent here, and now I'll be quiet. But it's um, I think we have to cradle that gently. We have to cradle it gently, um, because we're writing a book. It has to be all sorts of things for the reader, but um you know, we have to cradle those, the the, the reasons very gently.
0: Yeah. And, and you you skillfully take these these tragedies and and cradle them and, and give your readers hope that, you know, things will come out right on the other side. Uh, so where can we, where can we expect uh, Ms. Dobbs to be helping people um, process uh, some of those 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 violent things next? I mean, do you, do you envision her story carrying on into the Cold War period, or what's what's oh. amazing? Um, I I don't it, I I
1: I don't believe it's going to go into the Cold War period. <laughs> um, I I it, it's hard to say at this stage. What I am working on at the moment is a book set in uh, roughly the same time of year, but it's nineteen forty two. And um, I suffice it to say, one of the big things that happened in the fall of 19 in the autumn of 1942 is uh, um, the First Lady of the United States made a visit to Britain. And uh, her journey, the journey itself had to be quite hush hush because of the security issues around her. Um, because you know, there were so that was that was interesting to me, that's all that's I'm going to say about that. <laughs> So, but but anyway, it's it's various things coming together, and so it, it's 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 a year on, and it's a year on in um, the life of um, you know Maisie Dobbs and the other characters. And here's the only other thing I will say is that it's always been interesting to me how you know I generally am working with an idea that I had you know five years ago. But it wasn't the right time for that idea. I mean, for example, when I wrote, um, uh, was it The Mapping of Love and Death? I've got it somewhere behind me. I had the idea for that book and was inspired by something I'd read in a newspaper, I think about four years before I wrote the book. Uh, I knew it's just something I squirreled away. I can remember reading another author um, and I'm trying to remember who it was, um, Anne Tyler. She was and she was uh, talking about her latest book at the time. And she said, actually, she said, I first had the idea while I was working in my garden five years ago, she said, but, I, you know, I've got two kids and I knew I couldn't write that book yet. And so it's the same. Now, all I will say is that it's been extraordinary to me how an idea that I had sort of four or five years ago and I'm working on suddenly. Has suddenly includes. Um, let's say issues that are very very current and I don't know whether that's just that things come around again but you know it almost has made me at times think I better not go near this it's too much of a hot potato and then I think you know what I had the idea years ago so I'm just going to get on with it it might be gone by the time the book's published Um, but that was certainly true of you know the consequences of fear I mean you know, in the last year, a lot of people have been in a situation where fear has been a big part of their lives. That's so, true. Yeah.
0: yeah. As yeah. you said, there, there are a lot of universal truths out there, so... Yeah. <laughs> I
1: think um, I think Whatever. a lot of writers would absolutely say absolutely the same thing, that they, they're working on something and, and an idea they had a couple of years ago or a book they've been writing for several years and working on, and suddenly all the everything they bring up is current it's a current issue you know
0: and so what, what, what else are you working on if you can tell us i mean any more memoir or non maisy novels no um, actually business?
1: there is there is a non there's a couple actually funny you should say that she said there's um a non-fiction book that i would very much like to write that i have been slowly but surely doing the research for and it's not it's not a memoir but it will include some reflections um and um i'm I'm not going to say any more about that i've always someone once told me years ago you should never talk about what you're writing about because it takes away the need to write so if you it means that you're telling the story rather than writing the story Um, Um, and the other and and also i'm just sort of gathering my research materials for a standalone novel that i'm going to be working on after the book that I'm writing at the moment, which is a Maisie Dobbs book, which will come out this sort of this time next year, um, sort of March next year. Yeah.
0: So, so, so plenty for your fans to look forward to. It
1: keeps, keeps me out of mischief. <laughs> Yeah. And
0: and where can where can readers buy the consequences of fear or another of the amazing novels or your memoir that uh, this time next year will be laughing where, where can readers uh, get a copy
1: Okay um I would always point readers towards their you know local independent bookstores um, and um, uh, you know bookstores have done so many of them worked so hard the last during the last year bringing virtual events to readers so they don't miss out on book tours so and also delivering books and things like that and they work so hard they deserve they deserve our business and um but all the usual uh let's let us say online resources for ordering um but i would and also if um if you go to my website which is basically www.jacquelinewindspier.com and hit the events page Um, you will see that uh, there are uh, the virtual events that I've done are all still accessible um, by clicking on links and any one of those bookstores currently has my books and they possibly still have signed copies because I actually signed books and they were sent out. So um, and also that stands for the memoir as well. So it's jacquelinewinspearcom forward slash events. But go to the website and also the website um, if you go to the newsletters page, my newsletters um, are usually filled with a his, your background on the historical research that I do. And uh, that can also be interesting and gives you more information on on what I write and how I write.
0: Okay, so, the, <laughs> so the best places for readers to connect are your your website and your newsletter.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me in the corner today, Jacqueline. I, I know I've uh, uh, taken up a lot of your time. I'm taking away from, from, your, uh, from your walking time, so I appreciate you uh, no chatting with me. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Jacqueline Winspear, the author of the Maisie Dobbs novels. The latest is The Consequences of Fear. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating or review. Help me keep bringing you fun and informative chats with authors of cozy and traditional mysteries by supporting the podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash author Alexia Gordon. Until next time, goodbye.